Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Well, we ended our last lesson in John 19. Pilate was now out of options and he sat down at the judgment seat and pointing to Jesus, he asked the Jewish people in verse 15, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests replied. And so finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified and the soldiers took charge of Jesus. You know, you have to wonder what these Jewish religious leaders were thinking when they cried out, we have no king but Caesar. The fact that it was the chief priests who said this was truly shocking because they were the very people who were supposed to believe that God alone was their king. Matthew 27 verse 24 tells us that it is at this point that Pilate washed his hands of the whole matter. And we're told when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. You might think that Christ's journey to the cross started at this point, but truly his journey began in the stable back in Bethlehem because he was the one who had been born to die on our behalf. Let's pick it up again in John chapter 19 verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Crucifixion was the most shameful and painful method of execution. It was so bad that no Roman citizen could ever be put to death this way, no matter what crime they'd committed. At the time of Christ, they would first beat a person before crucifying them, and this was not entirely out of cruelty. You see, flogging was meant to bring about death more quickly. It was also customary for the condemned person to be forced to carry their own crossbeam to the site where they would die, and this was yet another way of breaking them down physically. Crucifixions were always done in public places so as to discourage others from resisting the Romans. The place of execution at that time was known as the place of the skull, which is Golgotha in the local language of Aramaic. The name in Latin for that same place is Calvaria, which today in English is Calvary. You see, even the name has been redeemed, for what once was a place of death has become a place of hope. Jesus, taking my place and yours, hung there between two thieves who went with him, and so fulfilled Isaiah 53 verse 12, where it is prophesied that he would be numbered with the transgressors, in other words, numbered with the lawbreakers. 
Verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The religious leaders wanted Pilate to change the sign, to say that Christ only claimed to be king of the Jews, but Pilate refused, letting it remain that Jesus was king. This is perhaps the only upright thing Pilate did that day. In those days, criminals had to carry the charge against them around their neck on the way to the execution site, and then that charge would be fastened to the cross. The sign given to Jesus was written in the three main languages of the time, so that Jew and Gentile alike would know of his kingship. Now, notice, according to verse 20, the place of crucifixion was near the city. In other words, the body of Christ, our sacrificial lamb, was dealt with outside of the camp. Just as the priests of old would use the blood of the sacrificial lamb in God's presence, but the bodies of those animals were dealt with outside of the camp or the city, in the same way, Jesus' blood began to flow within Jerusalem, but his body was dealt with outside of the city gates. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, and with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let us not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. You see, this was a fulfillment of a prophecy found about the Messiah in Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18. There it says, Dogs surrounded me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. See how accurate it is? A little way off, a small group of four women stood huddled together with the disciple John. Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. We know that this is John because he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The four women are Jesus' mother Mary, her sister Salome, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus endured such distress and yet, even in the midst of it, he took the time to ensure the future well-being of his mother, entrusting her into John's care. You may wonder why he did that, because after all, he had other siblings who could have taken care of Mary. But remember that we're told 
back in John 7 verse 5, that even his brothers did not believe in him. They only came to faith in Christ as their Messiah after his resurrection. Now they were nowhere to be seen, and so no wonder Jesus entrusts his mother Mary into John's care. In Jesus' final moments, he made seven statements from the cross, and we can't look at all of them, but we should look at one that John does not mention. According to both Matthew and Mark, at one point, Jesus cried out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is again quoting from the Messianic Psalm 22, which very clearly details crucifixion and what happened to Jesus that day. Why would the Father forsake Jesus in those last moments as he hung on the cross? You see, taking our sin upon himself, Jesus suffered the rejection that we deserve. And because he paid our debt, we are forgiven, cleansed, and reconciled to God the Father. This is the great exchange. My debt for his riches, my sin for his righteousness, or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ was forsaken by God the Father so that you and I would not have to be. Verse 28, what else did Jesus say on the cross? Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice it was so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The soldiers gave him a drink of sour wine from their own rations, and this fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 69 verse 21. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now that his mouth was no longer dry, Jesus cried out, It is finished. The word he uses there in Greek is tetelestē. In those days, this was a common word used by servants when they told their masters, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Not only that, but after careful inspection, when the priest decided that a sacrificial lamb was perfect, he would use that same word, tetaleste, meaning it is complete. And even more significant than that, the merchants in the marketplace would also use the same word to declare that a debt had finally been paid in full. Indeed, Christ had finished the work the Father had given him to do. He is the perfect sacrifice, complete in every way, and so the price for our sin is paid in full. Redemption is accomplished. It is finished.
For the Jews, as it was soon to be the Sabbath, and because of that, it was very important for the bodies to be removed from the crosses before 6 p.m. when the new day began. The reason for this was because according to God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, anyone who hung on a wooden pole or a tree was accursed by God, and their body needed to be taken down before sunset. It was not to remain overnight, for then in God's sight it would bring a curse to the land. And so the Jewish leaders had to guarantee the speedy death of those who were crucified. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. To fully understand this, we really need to know that when a person was crucified, nails would be driven through the wrist rather than the palm of the hand, as the smaller bones of the hand could not support the weight of the body. The feet were then also nailed to that upright post. Death usually came from loss of blood and heart failure, or by suffocation, because the weight of the body hanging on the arms made it impossible for the person to fill their lungs with air. The only way a person could take a breath on the cross would be to briefly push up on the spike through their feet to raise up their body in order to gasp for air. So to hasten the death of the condemned prisoners, the Roman soldiers would break the legs of those on the crosses because if you couldn't push upwards, you couldn't breathe. But they did not do that to Jesus because when they came to him, they saw that he was already dead. Verse 34, Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture said, they will look on the one they have pierced. John is the one who witnesses the fact that Jesus's legs were not broken. The bones of Christ, our Passover lamb, were left intact. And that is important because when God originally gave the instructions for the Passover in Exodus 12 verse 46, he specifically said that the bones of this Passover lamb were never to be broken. Jesus, however, was clearly dead because John tells us in verse 34 that 
As one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, a sudden flow of blood and water came out. Now, blood has got two parts to it. One part is clot, which looks a lot like blood. The other is serum, which looks more like water. These two parts to blood only separate from each other after death has occurred. So what John describes proves that Jesus was indeed dead when they pierced his side. Jesus did not faint. The evidence given here confirms death. Additionally, this fulfills the prophecies, for according to Psalm 34, verse 19 to 20, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones, not one of them will be broken. And Zechariah 12.10 is also fulfilled, for there we are told that they will look upon me, the Messiah, the one they have pierced. So what happens next in verse 38? Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were both members of the Jewish ruling council, and although they knew what the leaders were planning, they surely had not agreed to send Jesus to death. Surely the fact that they were disciples of Christ was no longer a secret once they asked Pilate for his body. Do you remember that when Nicodemus met Christ in John chapter 3, Jesus had told him then that the Son of Man would be lifted up even as Moses had lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Well, it seems very likely that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had both worked out the meaning of what Christ had said, that Jesus was telling them that he would be crucified. How do we know that? Well, Matthew 27 verse 60 tells us that the tomb that they used actually belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And yet it would have been very unusual for a wealthy person living in Jerusalem to purchase a tomb for themselves so close to an execution site. Not only that, but Nicodemus, we see from the text in John, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes of about 75 pounds. Such a large amount would have been impossible to organize quickly. So it seems to show that they had prepared ahead for what they knew was sure to happen. A prophecy in Isaiah 53 verse 9 was fulfilled in what they did, which says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
Jesus, the guiltless one, died between two thieves. He died with the wicked, and yet at his death he was buried in an unused tomb of a rich man. As Christ was laid there, the Sabbath rest of God began, and that's significant for truth be told, since that time we can now finally rest from our labours, our own works, and find a lasting rest in the Father's presence, all because of Christ's death on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, suffered the punishment that should have been ours. His death paid our debt to God the Father. Before we look at the resurrection of Christ, however, we need to consider a few things. For example, is there any proof that Christ's sacrifice was enough to reconcile us with the Father? To get our answer, we must look at the rituals of worship in the Old Testament because they were a picture of what Christ would come to do. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a yearly celebration called the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur. The Ark of the Covenant, which was like a huge golden box, was seen as a representation of God's throne, where his glory hovered over the lid of of the ark, which was known as the mercy seat or the atonement cover. This flat cover had two golden angels on it, one on either side. The ark was kept in the temple in a place known as the Holy of Holies, which had a thick curtain in front of it to keep mankind out of God's presence. Interestingly, this was the same curtain or veil that tore in two at Christ's death as a symbol that the way into God's presence had now been opened to all. Previously, it had only been on the Day of Atonement each year that the high priest was allowed into God's presence and he could never go in without the blood of a substitute sacrifice. That sacrifice had to be made to atone for mankind's sin, and the priest would then sprinkle the blood of that offering on the Ark of the Covenant between those two angels, and it would temporarily reconcile God with man for that year. The shed blood made man and God at one, which is the origin of the word atonement. Think about atonement. It is really at one because the act of atonement makes us at one with God the Father. But the blood of animals could provide no permanent solution. And so this act had to be repeated again and again, year after year. Of course, if the sacrifice proved to be unacceptable or imperfect in any way, the high priest would die in God's presence. And Jewish tradition tells us that he wore a rope around his ankle so that others could pull him out should that terrible thing happen. The only way that the people could be sure that the sacrifice the high priest had offered was sufficient was if their high priest returned to them. Christ is not only our sacrifice, he is also our great high priest 
and we know that the sacrifice he offered was acceptable and it was able to reconcile us with God the Father. Why? Because Jesus, our high priest, returned to us. The resurrection is essential for the message of the gospel because it proves that his sacrifice was enough. So knowing how important the resurrection might be, you can understand why the Jewish leaders put about the story that the disciples had stolen his body. We know, according to Matthew 27, verse 62 through 66, the Pharisees remembered that Jesus said he would rise from the dead after three days. It was at their request that Pilate had sealed the tomb and put Roman guards on it. Matthew 28 verse 11 through 15 tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead, some of the guards at the tomb went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets back to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The Jewish leaders promised to protect the soldiers. Now, honestly, we don't know if they did that because we're never told what became of the soldiers. The truth is the Romans took incompetence very seriously. If the soldiers had really fallen asleep while on watch, if they had lost the body entrusted to their safekeeping, Pilate would certainly have put them to death for failing in their mission. Of course, some skeptics have the swoon theory. They say that Jesus did not really die on the cross, but that he fainted and later revived in the cool tomb. But that has been clearly disproved according to the eyewitness testimony. Remember, John, though he had no medical knowledge, testified that blood and water, clot and serum were seen as Christ's side was pierced on the cross, proving that Jesus was indeed dead. Besides which, the Roman soldiers were well acquainted with death. Death was their business. They knew what it looked like and even they were convinced that Christ was really dead. Some have wondered, well, perhaps the disciples just went to the wrong tomb afterwards. But really, how could that be? Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, John, and all of the women knew exactly where Jesus had been laid. For example, Luke 23 verse 55 states that the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. They went to the right one, and that tomb was empty. We also know that the risen Christ was seen alive by many people after his death. Now, sometimes a skeptic might suggest that the disciples were all so grief-stricken that they hallucinated and they only thought that they saw Jesus after his death. 
But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 8, that 500 people saw Jesus at the same time. It's just not possible for 500 people all to have the same hallucination at exactly the same time, no matter how upset they are. Not only that, but when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said that most of those witnesses were still alive. They were still contactable at the time. Their story could easily be checked. And yet, people not only continued to tell of the resurrection, but more importantly, they were willing to die for the truth of it. Well, we're out of time again. You'll want to join us next week when we look at the empty tomb. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this great exchange, our debt for your riches, our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. Lord, thank you that he bore that which he did for our, on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would all live according to that great gift and that out of gratitude we should walk with you and live lives that bring glory to your name. It is in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.